You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And I'd really like to let something be known about the show here today. Our original hope had been to have a debate here or discussion today with a Catholic and an Eastern Orthodox here to discuss this book as well. But they decided they didn't want to do it about a week before. We didn't have enough time to get of our scholars in because we definitely want scholars so we decided just go as is so I, I do want to let that be known just in case some people think I'm being biased or anything here and I said because today we're looking at the book Roman but not Catholic why does the Reformation still matter today why should we care about what Martin Luther did 500 years ago this year well that's what we're going to be talking about today. And when we're talking about this, it's important to note that none of us are anti-Catholic, as it were. I work alongside Catholics in ministry, and I have no problem counting as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, my arguments for God's existence, Dr. Barros and I, one of our guests, they were talking about a book coming out that he's working on with arguments for God's existence, and my thought immediately is, do you all cover the Thomistic arguments? Because those are the arguments I use. I consider myself a Thomist. So we're going to be talking, though, about this book that I got, Roman but not Catholic. Why are they Protestants? Why does the Reformation matter? Now, who are they? Well, Jerry Wars, I talked about. He's been on the show before. He's a scholar in residence and professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. He's authored or edited over a dozen books and over 80 articles and reviews. Among his books are Hell, The Logic of Damnation, University of Notre Dame Press, 1992, Heaven, The Logic of Eternal Joy, Purgatory, The Logic of Total Transformation, and all these dates from aside, The Oxford Handbook of Eschatology, and he's co-author with David Baggett, Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality, and it was named the best book on projects and evangelism by Christianity Today and there and your Book Awards in 2012. He's also a big sports fan, has done two books about basketball, Basketball and Philosophy, Thinking Outside the Paint, and Wisdom from a Hardwood, Defying a Success Worth Shooting For. Dr. Wallace, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. And his co-author is Dr. Kenneth Collins. Kenneth Collins is an internationally recognized scholar in the field of historical theology and Wesley studies. He has given lectures in England, South Korea, Russia, Estonia, Finland, Costa Rica, and elsewhere. He's a graduate of Asbury with an MDiv in Princeton with a THM seminaries, and he did his doctoral work in Wesley studies at Drew University. He taught philosophy and religion at Methodist College for over a decade before he was appointed a professor of historical theology and Wesley studies at Asbury Theological Seminary, a position that he currently holds. The author and editor of 15 books, Professor Collins has 
produced scores of articles and numerous reviews. His books have been translated into Russian and Korean and soon Chinese. His Wesley titles include for works of John Wesley, Doctrinal and Controversial, for Sermons of John Wesley, A Collection of a Christian Journey, The Theology of John Wesley, Holy Love and Shape of Grace, John Wesley, A Theological Journey, Conversion of Wesleyan Tradition, Primary Editor along with John Tyson, an Assistant Editor, A Real Christian, The Life of John Wesley, and The Scripture Way of Salvation, The Heart of John Wesley's Theology. Beyond this, he has written numerous articles in the field of Wesley studies, too numerous to mention here. As a researcher in American religion, especially in terms of evangelicalism, he has written two important works, The Evangelical Moment, The Promise of an American Religion and Power, Politics and the Fragmentation of Evangelicalism from a Scopes Trial to the Obama Administration. His most recent book, released this year in October, along with co-author Dr. Jerry Walsh, our other guest, is Roman but not Catholic, What Remains at Stake 500 Years After the Reformation. He is currently working on a one-volume Wesley Bible commentary that is being prepared along with Dr. Joel Green. It will be published by Abingdon Press. And he's received numerous teaching awards. He's a dynamic lecturer and is a former president of the Wesleyan Theological Society. In addition, he has been on the steering committee of both Wesleyan Studies Group of the American Academy of Religion and the Oxford Institute of Methodist Theological Studies. He is the director of Wesley Studies Summer Seminar and Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal Studies Center. He is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Dr. Collins, welcome for the first time to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Collins, tell us a little about, in case my audience doesn't know who you are, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, thanks for asking, Nick. Um, when I was a young man, I had a powerful conversion experience. Uh, I was 22 years old at the time. I was fellowshipping with a retired Free Methodist minister who was situated in Brooklyn. He was 69 years old. I was 22. Uh, he had me read Johnny's 52 Sanded Sermons, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, those sermons got me into scripture in a deeper way. And over the course of a few months, I had what evangelicals call, you know, a conversion experience, uh, an evangelical born again experience. Um, out of that, I went to Asbury Theological Seminary to get the MDiv. And then after that, I went to Princeton Seminary to get a THM in church history. Uh, I love church history. Uh, church history for me was so liberating. It helped to confirm my Wesleyan faith, my Protestant faith in so many different ways, especially the early church, the first four or five centuries. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was at Princeton, I met Jerry Walls and we were studying the early church. We were in a class, uh, apologists and martyrs, and uh, both of us, you know, continue to have that kind of interest. After Princeton, I went to Drew University, studied under Tom Oden, did a PhD in the theology of John Wesley. And then, you know, graduating from that, I entered into academia first at Methodist College, which is now a university in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then in 1995, I came to Asbury Theological Seminary, where I am professor of historical theology and Wesley studies. Mm -hmm. Well, good to have you aboard here, and we look forward to a great discussion today. Well, thank you. Dr. Cohen, something I remember reading in the book also is that this is kind of, it's kind of a personal thing for you because you did grow up in the Roman Catholic Church, didn't you? Yes, uh, that's correct, Nick. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, but when I was a young man, the Holy Spirit 
led me into a different theological tradition, which is Wesleyanism. But I have a warm heart uh, for Roman Catholics. Uh, I acknowledge them fully as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And indeed, one of the reasons why I accepted uh, Jerry's invitation to become a part of this project was to help ecumenical relations. Um, what, what I would call deep ecumenism, not, mm-hmm. not the kind of superficial ecumenism that is out there. And there's, there's plenty enough of that uh, that doesn't really talk about matters uh, that are important, but a deep ecumenism. In other words, to identify those issues that actually do separate us. And, and this is sort of a factual dimension because we can identify key areas where we differ and, and sometimes sharply. And then to address those issues. I think that's that's very important. But it is eminently important to do all of that important ecumenical work in the proper spirit, in the spirit of the living Christ. Yeah, I, I think that's very good to say because I, I see too often it seems like there are a number of Protestants that are far right or right what to think that the Pope's the Antichrist and there's not a single Christian in the Catholic Church. And then there are some Catholics who I know seem to want to paint Martin Luther as one of the biggest idiots of all time. And I, I don't think any one of those is helpful. Completely counterproductive on both sides. Yes, I agree with you totally. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. I think we have to operate from a a basic position, given the history of the church throughout its 2000 years into the 21st century now, Mm -hmm. where important developments have happened along the way, like 589, as we mentioned in the book, like 1054, like 1517. The church is expressed today in various theological traditions, marked by the Holy Spirit, worshiping God, uh, centered in Christ, and we have to accept one another and embrace one another in Christian love and work together as a witness to the world in terms of our, our testimony to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And by the way, let you know later on in the show, for those of you who are interested in this book, I'm going to be telling you how you can get in touch with Baker, and they are going to be giving away five copies of this book to listeners of the Deeper Waters podcast. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. Now, Dr. Wallace, remind our listeners a bit about your story. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Well, I was converted um, at a very young age in a, uh, in a revivalist church when I was 11 years old. I uh, felt a call to ministry when I was 13 um, years old. I actually started preaching when I was just young, a teenager. And I uh, went on to college, and uh, while I was in college, became I'm very interested in philosophical and theological issues, and uh, eventually discerned that my my calling was was into academics. Uh, so I went to seminary and then pastored for three years. Uh, then went to Notre Dame and did my PhD, and um, have been in academics ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Walls, you went to Notre Dame. Does that have anything to do with your interest in writing this book? Yes, in fact, it's really it's really at Notre Dame that I first encountered uh, serious Catholics, I should say. Uh, growing up, my, my world was very much an evangelical world. Um, Princeton Seminary, I, I uh, encountered some Roman Catholics. In fact, uh, professors, some of the professors there were Roman Catholics. Some of the students were as well. But those were, as I say in the book, uh, those kind of balmy post-Vatican two days where the emphasis was on what we agreed about, not what we disagreed about. 
Mm-hmm. So you know the the differences that divide Protestants from Rome were, were really not on the on the uh, docket a whole lot. But I went to Notre Dame. Uh, I encountered a number of graduate students there, as well as professors who were serious conservative Catholics, and um, a lot of them kind of see their mission is to convert Protestants to Rome. In fact. Um, one of my professors, uh, when I left there, the last thing he said to me, and I, I'll never forget this, he said, I'm disappointed as hell you didn't become a Catholic. So he, um, he and I talked about these issues for hours and uh, discussed and debated them and the like. Um, so that's really where, where I first, uh, first encountered serious Roman Catholics promoting their views and seeing Catholics bent on converting Protestants to their perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, none of you, none of you two are very anti-Catholic. Maybe you don't care for Catholicism, but there's no problem with Catholics, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and in fact, in terms of Catholic with a small c, I very much consider myself Catholic, and I'm sure uh, Collins does as well. Mm-hmm. And in terms of Roman Catholics, too, we, we love our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. I work in a university where I have several Roman Catholic colleagues, and uh, we get along quite well, uh, get along quite famously. So, uh, yes, uh, we are very ecumenical. We fully embrace Roman Catholics as our brothers and sisters, and as Collins has said before, happily would invite them to share the sacrament of communion with us. So I don't consider them second-class citizens or second-class Christians or anything of the like. Um, uh, Very much a firm the Roman Catholic uh, Church is a great tradition in Christianity. And, uh, yes, and, and I would like to add to what Jerry said. Um, in, a, in a sense, and, and I think the book has made the case here, that we are the true Catholics today. We are the true Catholics because we are theologically orthodox. We are a part of traditions theological traditions that go back to the first century, you mm-hmm. know, consider it all like a family tree. Every tradition ultimately goes back to the first century. Uh, there have been some later reforms along the way, of course, and we have rightly participated in those reforms. But we welcome our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to the communion table, but they will not come. And so, you know, you have to ask the question, who well, is the real You know, I thought it was very interesting that when this dialogue was first set up, there was going to be a Roman Catholic priest and then an Eastern Orthodox uh, priest as well. And, you know, in their book, they started out by saying that uh, they at one point uh, used to meet at the same Eucharistic table when they were Lutherans, and now that they're Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, they no longer share communion. They're separated. And so they went from a a situation of of being united as Christian brothers to being divided. Mm -hmm. And, And what amazed me, and this was in the very early part of the book, is that couldn't they see how wrong this was? Couldn't they see how wrong this was in relation to John 20? Uh, And that the very heart of the Christian faith is the universal love of God manifested in Christ Jesus our Lord, overcoming these kinds of divisions. Uh, You know, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, where there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, but in, in their current understanding of the church, they're divided and they create separation. That's precisely a very un-Catholic thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now let's uh, look back then. 
here and, and see how this all gets started here. I mean, first off, I think we can say, yes, there has been abuse in the Catholic Church. And sadly, probably there's been abuse in every church. What we need to really look at, though, is the system itself and see what the problem is. So, I mean, for each one of you, I mean, what do you think, if you could point one thing that you think is the major problem that needs to be dealt with, what do you think it is? Well, the, the, this is the thing that's really the, the, to asking the impossible. Um, but Roman Catholic claims about papal infallibility, which have been made unilaterally, which mm-hmm. have a major stumbling block, not only uh, with, with Protestants, but also the, the Orthodox Church, and then unilaterally declaring uh, infallible dogmas, you know, which are also rejected in some cases by, by the Orthodox as well mm-hmm. as Protestants. Rome, Rome really has no option uh, at this point uh, but, to, but to maintain this because to do otherwise would, to, would be to backtrack uh, on their, their distinctive magisterial claims. So those are the uh, huge dividing walls that um, exacerbate the differences and make them uh, seemingly insurmountable. Uh, but uh, that, that's, that's really, uh, I, I think, the big uh, dividing wall right there are, are those kind of claims to infallibility uh, on the part of Rome and the unilateral claims they've made that are rejected by other branches of the church. Okay, Dr. Collins, so Dr. Wallace yeah, says it's I, the papacy. What do you think? Well, I think I think the, pap- the papacy is a piece of it. I, I think one of the things I learned from writing the book, Roman but not Catholic, is that it's actually ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, which is the meta narrative of Rome, uh, because mm. ecclesiology uh, basically filters into everything. I mean, let, let's go back to that situation where we began, uh, you know, in Rome, laying out the condemnation argument, condemning those who are baptized as Roman Catholics and who are now evangelical Protestants, you know, in Latin and South America today, people of color. Uh, the reason they do that, the, the condemnation, is because if they were to consider as equivalent going from Protestantism to Catholicism, like Richard John Newhouse did, for example, uh, to consider that equivalent from to going from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, what that does, it decenters the Roman Catholic Church and just makes it one tradition among other traditions, precisely what Rome refuses to acknowledge or accept. And so, in a sense, these millions of people, people of color in Latin and South America who are under the Roman Catholic condemnation are so because Rome insists on viewing itself as the church with a capital C, mm-hmm. viewing itself as the center, and therefore, in a very unecumenical way, because to view it this way not only leads to condemnation of a whole class of people, but to the diminishment of other real Christians. And these other real Christians in these different traditions, whether it be Reformed or Lutheran or Anglican or Pentecostal or Wesleyan, uh, you know, we see so very clearly uh, the the fullness and the richness of the graces and the Holy Spirit present in these uh, theological traditions, and mm-hmm. and they are without lack. Now let's go back in time, man. Say I don't know, five hundred years. That seems like a good figure. 
And you have this guy show up called Martin Luther. Now, a lot of Catholics I know online seem to treat Martin Luther as this foul, profane guy who hated the Jews, and all of a sudden he shows up and decides that the church has been wrong for 1,500 years. Now, on the face of that, it can seem pretty persuasive to people. What was really going on with Martin Luther? Well, Luther actually was dealing with a number of things, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think the principal or initial thing that Luther was dealing with was this whole uh, idea of how do I find a gracious God? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I find a gracious God in which I can find freedom of conscience, freedom from the guilt and and, and the power of sin? And I think uh, Luther's crisis uh, was precipitated for him because he was schooled in a particular kind of theology, I'm thinking of Gabriel Beale here, for example, uh, and and others, uh, and and some nominalists as well, in which he couldn't see the grace of God clearly enough. Uh, there were like accretions, overlays that had accrued uh, in theology uh, throughout the centuries that was helping to render the gospel opaque. And so Luther had to break through those incrustations so that the Christine kerygma uh, could be seen uh, once more. Uh, and, and that's exactly what he did and, and one of his chief uh, contributions. Because, see, Luther uh, affirmed the very radical Pauline notion found in Romans chapter 4, for example, 4-5, that God justifies not, not the holy uh, not those who are made holy and then on that basis are justified. No, God justifies the sinner. God mm-hmm. justifies the sinner. In other words, we don't have to clean ourselves up first before we're forgiven. Mm-hmm. God's forgiveness is generous. Uh, it's merciful. It's lavish. Uh, and as Paul says, God justifies the sinner. And there's nothing fictive about it. You hear Roman Catholic theologians at times say Lutheran's understanding of justification is fictive. There's nothing fictive about it because God has established how one is made right and one is made right by faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but what about some people who point to uh Luther's character, right? he was awfully foul-mouthed and such. And don't you know about what he wrote against the Jews? It's awful. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, it recalls to mind Eric Erickson's book, The Young Man Luther, which I've read and I talk about it in my classes on the Reformation. And um, uh, is, uh, is the material there in Erickson's book true? And the answer is yes. Luther said those things, he wrote those things, he could be crass at times, he could be vulgar, but you have to see a total picture. That, that's what Erickson missed. He basically strung a book together of you know, all of these vulgar, over-the-top sort of statements of Luther, and there certainly is a fund of that. But Luther was larger than that. You have to properly contextualize that. Um, I read... Uh, his treatise uh, on the Jews and their lies fairly recently. And yes, yes, it is indeed anti-Semitic, certainly by today's standards. But I I think we also have to understand Luther in his environment. Um, And one thing that I think led to that writing, and, and certainly this 
you know, I, I renounce anti-Semitism very fully and very forcefully, mm -hmm. but I got the sense in reading through his theological arguments that are present in that treatise, which, by the way, few people take the time to read, that Luther, I got this sense of, of, of a lover spurned. Uh, of his disappointment that the Jews, who are the rightful heirs of the gospel, uh, had rejected Christ. And he wrote out of that pain, and he wrote uh, in a very unbalanced way, uh, I might add. And so uh, there's no surprise that the book has been characterized as anti-Semitic. But Luther also did a lot of good. And, and let me mention this. You know, people talk about the treatise on the Jews and their lies, but what about Luther's Galatians commentary? I'm thinking of the larger one, the 1535 edition. You will not find a better exploration of what saving faith looks like than in that Galatians commentary of Luther, 1535 edition. It is wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. A true means of grace for any Christian, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, to read Luther's Galatians commentary and to grow and to prosper and to go deeper into the things of Christ. Mm -hmm. Dr. Morris, anything to add? Uh, no, I'm not really much of an expert on Luther, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, he was hardly hardly a flawless person, uh, and I think we need to frankly recognize his his blind spots where they were, and uh, where he was a sinful, flawed man, uh, mm -hmm. powerfully used by God in many ways, to be sure, but uh, certainly, certainly not not one you can unqualifiedly hold up as an example of piety in God. We're only going to be going about an hour and a half or so today, listeners out there. But I'd like to let you know at this point, uh, you're listening to the Deeper Wars podcast. I've got Dr. Kenneth Collins and Dr. Jerry Wars here talking about their book, Roman But Not Catholic. So if you're here next week, we're going to have an hour-long interview. And this time it's going to be with someone who's been on the show before. Andy Bannister is uh, going to be back in here. And he's going to be talking about uh, his the book, uh, in or formulaic study of the Quran manuscripts. So if you're interested in talking about the Quran and, and how it came to be, then please uh, be listening here for, for that one next week. So let's uh, get back to the book here. And now, whatever I think, I think that divides us is our use of scripture. And this one sounds I, I kind of get a bit worried, wondering about Kurds. I've heard that the Roman Catholic Church didn't want the laymen to have access to the Bible because if we do that, who knows what kind of strange, bizarre teachings will come out. Then I watch some YouTube videos with, and see some Facebook comments from Christians and think, you know, maybe they had a point with that one and such. So what about our doctrine of Scripture? How, how does that 
separate us. Is it a bad thing that we all have access to Scripture now? Well, first of all, uh, we read different Bibles. We need to acknowledge that at the outset. Um, I'm not making a big thing of that, although I find Roman Catholics at times make a huge deal out of this. Uh, I don't. Uh, I like dialogue between various theological traditions, dialogue with Roman Catholics, dialogue with Jews, dialogue with Eastern Orthodox. And when you talk about what scriptures in terms of the Old Testament that we would have in common, it would basically be the Protestant Bible because the Protestant Bible is uh, equivalent to the the Hebrew Masoretic text. Uh, I mean, the books are arranged differently, they're numbered differently, but the content is virtually the same. So if we're having a common conversation, we're talking about the Protestant Old Testament, which is also the the Hebrew Bible, and then we're talking about the New Testament. That should be our focus of attention if we're engaged in an ecumenical conversation like we all want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to split hairs on the Apocrypha in terms of, you know, what apostolic father preferred this and that. I, don't, I just don't even want to go there. I want to have a common conversation because these writings are commonly used by these traditions, and therefore that bespeaks uh, of their very nature. What do you think about this, Dr. Wallace? Um, the, the differences between the, uh, the Apocrypha, including the, the Apocrypha and the rest of the, uh, the Old Testament, I don't know that there's any major doctrine that hinges on those books. Uh, I do know that as someone who's written about purgatory, that um, there's a classic text in the Apocrypha uh, used to support the doctrine of purgatory. But, I mean, all the doctrines that are, that are really essential that we agree upon, I, I don't know that there's any major doctrine that hinges on accepting the Apocrypha or not. So I'm inclined, like uh, Collins, not to make a big deal of it. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the whole practice, though, of the idea of sola scriptura? Because I think that can be very badly misunderstood because a lot of people think it means solo scriptura with only the Bible, period, and such. Or sometimes it's even been called naked scripture, or if it's just the Bible alone. And that's not really a position that any of our reformers held to, is it? Not at all. And in fact, the reformers had a strong view of the importance of tradition. And uh, you may be aware of a project I was involved in earlier, the Reforming Catholic Confession, which uh, Ken was also involved in as well on the drafting committee. And uh, uh, a, part of what, a part of what we wanted to emphasize there is that true Protestantism is Catholic, uh, again, with a small c. You, you can't really be true to the Protestant, classic, traditional Protestant heritage if you don't respect the Catholic creeds. And, and um, uh, if, if indeed you believe that the Bible is clear, uh, if, if you believe in the idea of the perspicuity of Scripture, that gives you good reason to think that the Church got it right in its classic uh, Christological and Trinitarian affirmations uh, and, and so on. So the notion of, of sola scriptura is simply the claim uh, that, that scripture is the highest authority, uh, not, a, not that, that it's the only authority, and that the things that are essential for salvation are clear, not that everything is clear. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, lots of people have, have certainly abused that and, and, and run off in some crazy directions with it, but rightly understood in terms of historic Protestant emphases, it's about the supreme authority of scripture over any other tradition. Than any other human authority. Yes, uh, and I would like—I um, like to add to that in that I often hear Catholic apologists that they set up this kind of straw man in terms of sola scriptura, 
that they basically focus on an individual Protestant of, of which there are millions in the world. Uh, and then they say it's the individual Protestant and his or her reading of the scripture. And then you just get, you know, millions and millions of interpretations, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that is a caricature. Uh, I, I don't know Protestants who view the Bible that way or who consider sola scriptura means that. Uh, first of all, in that caricature, they have separated Protestants from their theological traditions, from their communities. Uh, it's not an individual deciding what the text means. It is a community that weighs that. So, for example, I'm a Wesleyan. I'm a United Methodist. Um, it, the, I'm a part of a Wesleyan interpretive tradition that is going throughout the centuries, mm -hmm. okay? And that is a part of tradition. And so when we say sola scriptura, we don't mean that it isn't going to be informed by tradition, certainly in terms of the interpretive traditions of which we are a part. And we certainly don't want to bracket out our communities uh, as well mm -hmm. and to run down a, a, a sort of individualistic path, which is the way the stereotype is laid out. We're far more communal uh, than Roman Catholics recognize. Uh, we do things in community. We do things in terms of our ongoing interpretive traditions, whether that be the Reformed tradition or the Wesleyan tradition. And then also in understanding scripture, we are mindful of the larger history of the church, you know, that goes back, of course, um, through the creeds, through the apostolic testimony into the first century. That too is very much a part of our interpretive environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as Jerry said, scripture for us functions in a normative way, meaning that if there is a tradition that has merged, a human tradition that has merged after the recognition of the canon, uh, which took place in the fourth century. And if it contradicts scripture, well, scripture is the normata normans, uh, and it would trump uh, that very human tradition, which contradicts scripture and therefore would rend it problematic. So mm -hmm. when we say sol sola scriptura, we don't mean scripture is alone in the sense that there isn't tradition in the environment. There isn't reason or experience in the environment as well. They're there. It's just that scripture is the norming norm, uh, and it, it, it trumps the very human traditions that have grown up throughout the church, and which some of which help to render the gospel opaque. Right, and, and again, it's not merely tradition that contradicts Scripture, but tradition that is given normative dogmatic authority that is not sufficiently supported by Scripture. So the, the Marian dogmas are a classic example of this. Right. Uh, they've been given the status of, uh, you know, a, a, of infallible dogma in, in the Roman Catholic Church that requires the highest level of assent. But uh, these, these doctrines uh, lack any kind of clear biblical warrant so it's not that they're contradicted by Scripture, uh, but um, but they certainly are not warranted or supported by any kind of clear clear scriptural teaching. Mm -hmm. So shouldn't dogmatize, make as an absolute something that lacks uh, scriptural support? That would be, I think, an essential claim for a Protestant. Well, let's talk about the one who makes things absolute in Catholicism, and that would be the Pope. Now, for me, I mean, my understanding of history isn't that perfect and such, I'll grant. 
But it's my understanding there have been times where there have been really, really bad popes. Times there have been two popes. One time there was even three popes, and none of them were getting along and such. And I mean, you know, to me, I'm sorry, this seems to be kind of like a defeater here. But some people would say, yeah, but look, I mean, Every church has its share of bad preachers, bad priests, and such. Does that negate the teachings of your church? I mean, what do you all think? It's the very what, strong what, claims uh, that the Pope that, that I think are at issue here. He's not just another priest. He's not just another bishop. He's the vicar of Christ. He's the bishop of bishops. He's the you know the, the chief shepherd, things of this sort. And the idea that um, this person with this extremely important office, which is precisely claimed to be necessary to preserve unity within the church. And again, this is a charismatically chosen leader. I mean, the idea is that, that God selected these popes. Okay, so, so the idea that, that someone of this importance playing this sort of a role, charismatically chosen, would not meet some basic minimal standards of morality, character, and orthodoxy mm -hmm. uh, is troubling. So, yeah, I mean, this is not just another preacher. This is not just another priest. This is not just another bishop. Of course, the Bible itself warns us uh, about, the, uh, about the wolves coming into the clergy and, and any kind of uh, an institution is vulnerable to that kind of corruption. But given the, the, the very exalted uh, singular claims made on behalf of the papacy, yeah, I find that history implausible given Roman Catholic claims. Dr. Collins, I think you've got something you want to add to that, don't you? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, here we run into problems of church history because I run across Catholic apologists, Roman Catholic apologists, who claim that Peter was the first pope. And that, you know, that's equivalent to saying the United States in the 13th century didn't have very many people. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't compute. Uh, what they're doing is they're taking later uh, historical realities and they're reading them back into the past uh, where they simply don't belong. And Rome has a real problem here uh, in terms of the papacy and actually in terms of its hierarchy, because we have argued in the book uh, and showcasing some other scholarship from other scholars as well, that the Roman Catholic claim of the papacy and that it is a part of uh, an unending apostolic succession of bishops that goes all the way back to Peter, you know, Peter as the first bishop of Rome, that that is uh, very problematic, uh, very problematic indeed, because we, you need a monarchical episcopate in order to have the kind of bishop that Rome wants. And the problem is we don't have that in Rome until the latter part of the second century, if the work of Lampe and Bear and others uh, is to be taken into account. And so these claims that have to touch base with the first century, you know, in, in connecting all the dots with the apostolic succession of bishops never makes it to the first century because the apostles are passing on power and authority to presbyters, okay, not monarchical bishops. The first sign we really have of a monarchical bishop, where we have a distinction between deacon, presbyter, and bishop, uh, is actually in the East with Ignatius in the early second century. But in Rome, it's much later. It's much later, as a number of scholars have argued. And so you need this in place in order to have the papacy. And then what you need on top of that, you would have to have the Roman bishop preferred 
preferred among other bishops, and that takes time as well. It's certainly not in place in terms of the latter part of the second century. It takes time for that kind of recognition to emerge. So the papacy in a real sense is a number of historical claims, we can look at them, uh, that have been made by the Western church uh, over a period of time. They're gathered together and they're repeated and brought forward to succeeding generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as Jerry was mentioning in passing, we've had, uh, you know, uh, a, a new one added to the papacy formally, dogmatically in the 19th century in terms of, in terms of papal infallibility, okay? Um, and that, by the way, the, the papal infallibility, the declaration of that, got uh, Johann Dollinger, who wrote the Pope and the Council, uh, it got him condemned and excommunicated. Uh, And he was a faithful Roman Catholic. Why was he excommunicated? Because he did not affirm papal infallibility. Well, papal infallibility, you you would never find that in the first century. You won't find it in the second century because there's no papacy there. This is a later claim. It's made essential to the faith Uh, such that if you do not affirm it, like uh, Johann Dollinger, you are condemned and excommunicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's very ironic. Uh, Well, let let, let me add another point to this, because I'm thinking of Savonarola now. Savonarola, in his own context, who was a godly man, situated there as he was in Florence. His major problem was that he pointed out in a very truthful way, in a very truthful way, the debauched life of of Alexander VI, one of the Borgia popes, uh, who was particularly particularly wicked. Mm -hmm. And uh, Servanarola had the effrontery to point out these evils and to call for reform for which he was excommunicated and then ultimately ultimately murdered. And so, you know, this is a, a very difficult history for the papacy because it seems that if you question the papacy, if you point out its evils, uh, it not only gets you excommunicated, as with Dollinger, but in some cases it gets you killed, as with Savonarola. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I hear Catholics from time to time talk about the papacy as a gift. What kind of gift is this? It's certainly not a gift that unifies the church. As a matter of fact, truthfully speaking, it is precisely what divides the church because neither Eastern Orthodoxy nor Protestantism accept the papacy. It represents the ongoing division of the church and shows in yet another way where Roman Catholicism is not Catholic. It would therefore be much better to go back to the situation in the 15th century with the Council of Constance and have the church ruled by a council. Uh, and we can see that in, in, you know, in a very broad way with a council. That would probably be a better way. It's very dangerous to invest such great power in one man. You know, Roman Catholics talk about Protestant individualism. It's hard to get more individualistic than that with one pope infallibly invested, deciding what is or what is not uh, the teaching of the church. Hard to get more individualistic than that. Ironically, ironically, right now, it is a lot of Roman Catholic conservatives 
who are so extremely critical of their own pontiffs. So, you know, it used to be that Protestants were the ones who said the Pope was the Antichrist. If, if you listen to conservative Roman Catholics today, it's almost like they think that about their own Pope. So, uh, ironically, uh, again, it has proved a source of division not only between different churches, but within the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy itself is extremely controversial right now. I found it pretty interesting when you mentioned Alexander VI, because when I was reading your book, I mean, I emailed this to you two, but I've been a gamer all my life, still am. I mean, Dr. Wallace likes his basketball. I prefer my Zelda and Final Fantasy. But <coughs> I was <laughs> I was reading through, and I saw the name of Pope Alexander VI Borgia. That name looks familiar. I think I've seen that before outside of just history. And I looked it up, because there was a time my mother-in-law actually started playing the Assassin's Creed game, the first one. Now, I've never played them, but she was reading into it because there was so much history involved in it. So I read an article on it somewhere, and I thought, yes, I'm pretty sure seeing If you play, apparently, Alexander VI's reputation has passed down for history, because if you play that game, Pope Alexander VI is a final boss. <laughs> Zelda's outside of my realm of uh, expertise, although my son uh, co-edited a book, actually, about the legend of Zelda and theology, but it's not, not uh, something I, I have much expertise about. Well, it's uh, definitely... A very good book, I'll say. Your son's book on Zelda and theology. Love to have him on here sometime to talk about. But yeah, that's just saying the reputation has passed down here. And, I mean, Alexander VI did have a terrible reputation, but thankfully I think we can agree that many popes in recent time have had a wonderful reputation. But they have indeed, and the Roman Catholic Church has been very, very fortunate with its recent popes, although, like I say, the current one, for many people, is extremely controversial. And um, it's not probably coincidental that um, during the period of John Paul II and, and the like, so many Protestants have been attracted to going to Rome. So when you got a, a model pope, it does make Rome, Roman Catholicism more attractive to people. But, of course, that can change uh, with the next pope. Now, let's talk some also about something you mentioned, Dr. Wallace. My wife and I, we go through a little bit of scripture every night, maybe like a paragraph or so together and then pray about it along with our regular prayers. And we're going through the Christmas story, and you get to the account of Mary. And you know, I, I think there can be extremes. I mean, I think, do you think familiar dogmas in Catholicism do go too far? But I think sometimes we Protestants can look and say, hey, hey, we we don't want to do that one. And we can lower Mary too much and not realize that she still is a woman who deserves great honor. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, I, I, I suspect that part of the, the Protestant uh, reaction is due to the Roman Catholic overemphasis on, on Marian dogma, uh, Protestants have overreacted. So, so yeah, we, we need to guard against that. Um, we need to properly honor and uh, respect uh, and even venerate what Mary did uh, and honor the, the commitment of her as an ideal disciple of Christ. Mm -hmm. So we need, to, we need to have a properly balanced view, and I think our book does that. I mean, uh, we both agree that uh, it's important to, to recognize Mary as Theotokos, um, the classic traditional view that Mary's bear God, the God-bearer. So 
Uh, where that has been part of Catholic tradition in terms of the Catholic creeds, uh, that's an important thing that we need to that we need to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Dr. Collins, any thoughts on Mary Vera? Yeah, well, since I've written two chapters on Mary, uh, yeah, I do have a few comments here. The main thing to see, and once again, you know, this is just in fairness here, is I think uh, we have to come to balance here. I, I think you're right. I think Protestants have underestimated Mary's role uh, in the economy of salvation, and therefore they need to get up to speed. Uh, but then on the other hand, I think Rome has overemphasized and exaggerated uh, Mary's role in the process of redemption. And so we have to come to a balance here. I think the key uh, shift came after the recognition of Mary as Theotokos, which, by the way, best translates as bearer of God, not mother of God, Mm -hmm. but the bearer of God. Uh, And this, of course, becomes an important issue Uh, in the debates with Nestorius uh, and the recognition of Nestorianism, that whole sort of thing. But the point is that the doctrine of Mary, and even in terms of giving her the title of Theotokos, I mean, if you go to an Eastern Orthodox service even today, you'll hear Theotokos mentioned at least a half a dozen times in the service. That language was principally Christological language. In other words, Theotokos said something about Jesus. It said something about Jesus and who he was in terms of his personhood and natures. And so uh, Nestorianism was rejected because it, it saw a sharp division between the divine and human, you know, really issuing in an idea that Christ was uh, basically two persons because the natures were so divided uh, because Nestorius took exception to calling Mary, you know, the bearer of God. But since Christ is one person, you know, if Mary gives birth to Christ, uh, she gives birth to both Christ divine and human. Uh, And so that title, Theotokos, is aptly made. But the issue is, it was a Christological judgment. It was important because of the what it said about Jesus. What we see happen later on is that Mary, uh, as opposed to Jesus, becomes the focus. Uh, and that's not how the early church started out. The early church started out grappling with theology, and they were grappling with a serious Christological problem in terms of Nestorius, used the title Theotokos, but that basically says something about uh, Jesus Christ in terms of the person and natures. Uh, over time, over time, the shift, and it's a subtle shift, the shift is turned to Mary herself where she is first pronged. And that's where the difficulty comes in. That's mm. where new doctrines emerge, which go beyond scripture, uh, have no place in scripture. Uh, and they grow and they imply one another and they start to take a life of their own until you finally have, by the time we get to the 19th century, a full-blown Mariology uh, which many Protestants, of course, are uh, reacting against. Yeah, there's one doctrine about me. I don't remember you all discussing my book. Maybe I'm just not remembering right. And it's when it's always struck me as odd, and that's the idea of perpetual virginity. 
you know, as a married man, I just, first off, I think the text clearly does say Jesus had brothers, and I think it's too much of a stretch to say those are brothers from another marriage and such. And second, I think, somehow I just don't think Joseph would have gone along with that whole idea anyway. Yes, and I, and I actually have addressed this issue in the book. But first of all, I want to back up and say that several Protestants have affirmed the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, John Wesley being one of them. Um, mm. I, I think he basically got it through Catholicism, through his Anglican tradition. That's how it was mediated to him. But uh, I would agree with you, Nick, uh, that if Joseph doesn't consummate the marriage. In what sense is it a marriage? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it almost seems like Joseph then becomes a house guest or something. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's not really a marriage if there is no uh, sexual intercourse. But I think what the church uh, in its traditioning found so problematic was this issue of human sexuality in terms of Mary because it, it became associated with sin. It became associated with sin and they wanted to remove all sin from Mary and therefore she could not participate in normal sexual relations. You take, for example, uh, you know, the great Latin father Augustine. You know, when Augustine is thinking about how original sin is transferred from generation to generation, well, it's through human copulation. And so if that's the case, uh, then Mary can't participate. Mary can't participate in that uh, because that would render her you know, less than uh, in the eyes of theologians who are carving out, uh, carving out their doctrine of Mary. I've also addressed the issue of a larger sexual ethic within the within the Roman Catholic Church, which is which is clearly there, in terms of a kind of hierarchy where virginity. I mean, think of Jerome writing on virginity, for example, on virgins. Uh, that, that gives you a sense of it. Where virginity is the apex. In other words, to be the most holy of all, you must be a virgin. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, not everybody can be a virgin because some people have lost their virginity. Well, then you can do the next best thing. And Rome is quick to offer it. Celibacy. You can make a promise of celibacy that you will be celibate throughout your life. Well, not everybody can do that because uh, some folk are married. Well, then what you could do, like Catherine of Genoa did, you could live in a continent marriage. In other words, forswear all sexual relations between husband and wife. And that's exactly what she did. She woke up one day, told her husband, uh, we will have no more sexual relations, and they entered into a continent marriage. Then if you can't do that, you can have what's called a chaste marriage. And a chaste marriage would mean that there's no unlawful sexual activity uh, taking place within the sacred bond. And that would mean that it would exclude all uh, human copulation that did not focus on the fruit of that union in terms of children and procreation or any sort of sexual activity that was not you know, geared towards that, that would be considered as disordered and, and that sort of thing. And then if you still can't do that, and that, by the way, would exclude masturbation as well in, in the married life. Uh, if, then if you can't do that, uh, then I suppose you'd have average marriage, uh, which is probably 
what most Roman Catholics are practicing today because many of them clearly practice contraception, which would be forbidden uh, in a chaste marriage. That would be forbidden in a chaste marriage. So actually most Roman Catholics today would be sort of at the bottom rung, you know, in this hierarchy of, of holiness, which is tethered to gradations of uh, sexuality that they'd be at the very bottom here of average marriage because they practice contraception. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting of late, very interesting of late, that the big debate in the Roman Catholic Church right now is whether to admit to communion divorced and remarried Roman Catholics. Uh, I, I find this question uh, as a Protestant uh, very interesting because here some are suggesting that the Pope is moving in a direction of leniency so that a divorced and remarried Roman Catholic could go to communion, but a celibate Protestant could not. Uh, and so I, I find this a very strange world, a very strange world with all sorts of odd judgments being made. And the key to those odd judgments is once again, ecclesiology, because the Protestants do not belong to the right theological traditions. They receive the negative judgment and are barred from the communion table. But even Roman Catholics who have committed what in the eyes of some is adultery, in other words, divorced and remarried, the Pope is thinking about they possibly could go to communion. Meanwhile, Protestant saints are not welcome. What's wrong with this picture? How then is the Roman Church Catholic? Well, before we get to Dr. Wallace for what he'd like to add to that, I'd like to say that you're listening to the Deeper Wallace podcast. We're talking about the book Roman but Not Catholic today. And uh, I'd like to let everyone know what we do here, it's supported by listeners like you, and we could use your support. Please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on the link in there, you get taken to the website of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there, but you can get in touch with them or me or my wife, Al, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And uh, you can also buy some eBooks that I've written, such as The Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters and Christian Answers of This Generation's Questions. Or you can also buy jewelry. That's right. We've got a jewelry store here. Get in touch with me. There's a link to it on the site there, and I'll help you out if you need anything. But whatever you buy, 25% of it goes to deeper water. So, guys, if you're thinking of popping up a question this month like I did, then this is a good time to do it. And if you want to support charity at the same time, you can do that. And like I always tell you guys, 
You can buy this to make up that big screw-up that you recently did for that lady in your life. Or you can buy some jewelry to make up for that big screw-up that I know you're going to make of that lady in your life. And, <laughs> and, and uh, if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters podcast. i love to see them. Dr. Collins, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, Asbury Theological Seminary mm-hmm. uh, would, I think, be a great place to make a donation. I'm very much committed to theological education, to helping young folk become leaders uh, in the church today to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Mm-hmm. And we've had several great people from Asbury on here. We've had Craig Keener has been on a couple of times. Ben Riverington's been on, so we're glad to help out. What's the website people can go to? Uh, it would be www.asburyseminary.com. Okay. And Dr. Wars, do you have any organization you'd like to see people donate to? I would say Houston Baptist University. So uh-huh. a lot of exciting things happening down here at HBU in terms of philosophy and uh, apologetics and, and related uh, areas. In fact, uh, your father-in-law, Mike Lacona, uh, teaches on our faculty. For us, so um, HBU would be a great place to make a donation if you care about those kinds of issues. Yeah, and we've had some people on from HBU as well. Holly Ordway's been on a few times. We had Louis Marcos on. So, yeah, we support HBU here. But, Dr. Wars, um, Dr. Collins just got done talking about views on sexuality in Roman Catholic Church. Now, you've got a book coming out, you've said, next year, which I'm hoping to get to interview you on, on the topic of sexuality and the beauty and such of. Venus and Virtue, Celebrating Sex and Seeking Sanctification. It's a collection of essays I co-edited, and it uh, addresses various uh, issues, not only in sexual ethics, but also we're we're primarily concerned in making a positive case for the truth and the beauty, uh, you know, the the beauty and the goodness of the Christian worldview. Uh, I, I think we need to recover those biblical theological foundations in order properly to appreciate the truth of the Christian ethic. You know, I think when we look at the church followers, they lived in a world where sexual immorality was very, very rampant. And Augustine had himself fallen into that sin. And it could be that possibly they went too far in wanting to avoid the sin. I mean, what do you think about that? I'm inclined to think that's exactly right. Uh, the, the, the very suspicion of pleasure as if there's something kind of uh, intrinsically dubious about sexual pleasure. So um, we, we, need to re, we need to recover uh, the beauty, the goodness, uh, celebration of the physical, the body, uh, all of that uh, as good gifts of God to be used as he ordained them to be used. Yes, I, I, no, I want to add to this because actually it's a very important issue. I, I've seen this, especially in my years in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I've seen it play out in terms of my mother and father, my own parents, the, the kind of Roman Catholic sexual ethic. Um, and, you know, if you basically are celebrating virginity and you are doing that structurally, you're doing it structurally in terms of a hierarchy. So that that's a statement to the broader world and also to the church, by the way. But here's the problem. Here's the problem, especially in light of what I said earlier in terms of the kind of hierarchy where virginity is at the top and average marriage is on the bottom. Mm. You know, some Roman Catholic religious, you know, look upon marriage people, I mean, how could they be 
uh, wholly at the highest levels. Uh, that would be a mm. rare, a very rare case. I mean, it might be the case of Teresa of Lesseur's parents. Uh, that might be the case. But in terms of the average person, because they're thinking, they've got so much Augustine on their mind, they're thinking that in the very act uh, of, of making love to one's spouse, uh, it will be vitiated, you know, as mm. Augustine thought with various uh, levels of concupiscence and lust and this sort of thing. Uh, and that's very much embedded uh, in lots of Catholic material that I've read. Uh, and so then you raised, here's the problem that you have, because you look at the Jewish community. I'm familiar with the Jewish community, having grown up in, in Brooklyn and New York, well conversant with it. And they view human sexuality in a very different way, as a gift from God, as a full-orbed, the thing of the goodness of creation. What you have in Catholicism at times, what you've had, I should say, in Catholicism at times, it's, it's much better today, is that the God of redemption <laughs> is opposed to the God of creation, their intention. And what we have to do to, to forge a proper sexual ethic is to realize that the God of redemption is not at war with the God of creation, that human sexuality is a very good thing. It is a gift. It is a holy thing. Uh, you know, I think it's remarkable that there wasn't a book, wasn't even a book on conjugal spirituality until the 20th century, because most of the spiritual classics in the church, especially the Western church, were written by celibate monks, <laughs> uh, many of them. Uh, and so that has skewed the perception of things. And we do, I agree with Jerry, we do need to get back to a more well-rounded Mm -hmm. view of human sexuality, especially in terms of its relation to holiness, mm -hmm. because married people can be some of the most holy people of all. You cannot really have a good theology of salvation and redemption if you don't start with a theology, a strong theology of creation. Mm -hmm. uh, the goodness of creation is originally given by God, and redemption and salvation is about getting back to the goodness of Creation, not obliterating it or, or denying it. So, thus again, the title "Celebrating Sex and Seeking Sanctification" is totally compatible uh, goals that, that Christians should readily embrace. Both of those. You know, I was listening to Dr. Collins. I was saying it's quite a contrast, and because it seems like Roman Catholics traditionally and Protestants traditionally been on quite opposite ends. Because you know how Roman Catholics are looking at some married couples and thinking, how could they and such? And meanwhile, too often in Protestant churches, if you take a, I mean, I've got friends who are single, and they, as far as I know, they don't have intentions of marrying and such, so they're willfully saying they're going to stay virgins for the rest of their life. God bless them. But too often it seems like in Protestantism that uh, we've got cases where that if, uh, if you're unmarried, you're looked upon as if you're a lesser Christian, of sorts. And once you get married, well, then you, you get to become a real Christian at that point. Yeah, so single, singleness certainly needs to be celebrated, and, um, and that is something that Protestants have probably not, not properly emphasized and appreciated. Now, there is more emphasis on it recently uh, in recognizing that ultimately what makes for a good life, sexuality, is a very, a very important component of that. But it's not absolutely essential. I mean, one can be a perfectly fulfilled, uh, fully human, flourishing human being uh, right. as a single, chaste person. And mm -hmm. I think we need to recover that and celebrate that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk some also about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And I going also about this is something I think Protestants really don't think a lot about. I mean, especially when you're a young kid and you go to a church and you get to have a wafer and a little bit of grape juice and you think, what's the big deal and such? And I was when I was attending a Lutheran church, I started appreciating it more and more. And I remember when I got married, I got married on a Saturday. That Sunday, I think we missed church for some reason. You know, it, I, it, it, it's a mystery to me. But yeah, we, we were actually heading to our honeymoon at that point. But we got back the next Sunday and we were in our church. And my wife had done something very recently, shortly after our honeymoon, to hurt her leg some. And so she was sitting in the back room and watching the service on our television in there. And they said that we were back. And so, because uh, it was a small church, they knew who we always said, yeah, they got married, so they're here now. And that Sunday, we did have communion, and I'd said, you know, I'm her husband. What I'm going to do when communion comes, she's in the back room. I'm going to take things back there to her so she can partake of communion. And for me, it was a very awesome act to get to do that. There was something very special about it. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on communion? I, I need to ask you a question, Nick. Um, mm-hmm. Were both you and your wife married in the Protestant church? Yep. Okay. Okay. I did need to uh, know that situation there. Yeah. We've been Protestants all our lives, and we were married in a Baptist church. We didn't attend it because when we got married, she didn't live in Charlotte at the time where I was living, and our church wasn't good for weddings. It was very, very small. This church we went to was built for weddings. Right. We quote in the book, uh, a woman uh, who was Rome, who was Protestant, I believe that's the way it was. She was Protestant, and she wanted to go to communion with her Roman Catholic husband, and so she asked the Pope, Pope Francis, and we quote this material in the book. I mean, it's the Pope's very words, and he responded to this woman and. You know, he spoke and he spoke and he sort of hemmed and hawed and then basically, you know, didn't say she could, you know, he, he, that she couldn't take communion with her husband. And so, you know, here you have something, you have two Christians, you have a Protestant and a Roman Catholic, and they're married. Mm-hmm. They're married. They yeah. are one flesh, mm-hmm. one flesh. How do you divide that one flesh theologically at the communion table when they're both Christians? Mm-hmm. How do you overcome that oneness? Again, goes back to ecclesiology. It goes back to how Rome views herself as the church with a capital C, who has a ministry that is in apostolic succession of bishops that goes all the way back to Peter, although we know that's a myth. And then it has rightly ordered sacraments, meaning that Rome acknowledges the full sacramental mystery of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, in a way that Protestants do not. Mm -hmm. And so on that basis, on that basis, 
They are causing division at the communion table, a very uncatholic thing to do, by the way, Mm -hmm. especially when you're faced with two real Christians, not only two real Christians, but two real Christians who love each other and who are in bonds of sacred love, that not even that and the fact that they're Christian can overcome this separation and division. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Dr. Walsh, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I, I just find it ironic that uh, the sacrament of Holy Communion in Scripture is a sacrament of union, one one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, uh, one cup. Um, and uh, the, the fact that something that should unite us, and again, it's obviously not, not a simplistic matter here because mm-hmm. Roman Catholics uh, believe things about uh, the nature of the sacrament that Protestants don't and, and the like. And so sometimes, you know, my Roman Catholic friends say, "Well, you, you reject our view of the sacrament. So why would you want to? Why would you want to share in it?" Well, I, I guess my answer would be this: I mean, the the conditions, uh, the qualifications, or or criteria for for taking the sacrament should not hinge on a particular ecclesiology or sacramental theology. It should mm-hmm. hinge on whether you believe in Jesus, whether you you accept the lordship of Christ, whether you are an Nicene Christian. Mm-hmm. And anyone who is a Nicene Christian who believes in the Lordship of Jesus, who believes uh, that he's bodily raised from the dead, who affirms him as Lord, uh, anyone anyone who does that ought to be welcome to the family. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I guess my suggestion would be that that um, the Roman Catholics could be prepared to say, look, we disagree on the theology of this, but we all agree that uh, this is that this is something that Christ commanded his followers to do. And as, as those who are united in Christ, we can all share this as brothers and sisters. Uh, that's probably, again, asking more than a lot of Roman Catholics are willing to do. But um, uh, that is what I would think uh, uh, would, be, would be an option uh, that could at least be thought about. And again, you know, when the Pope was, was talking to this woman, he obviously was thinking in similar terms and came right up to, you know, the edge of saying that. But then, Backed away from it, uh, as as Ken suggested. Mm-hmm. So it should be about emphasizing unity, and the source of our unity is our shared faith in Christ, not a particular ecclesiology or sacramental theology. Okay, well, there's probably not enough time to get into another topic here, so let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. I'd like everyone know the book is Roman but not Catholic. It's available right now from Amazon for twenty twenty nine on paperback and nineteen twenty four for Kindle. But you know, maybe you'd like to just see if you could win a copy for yourself. Well, after this show goes live, Baker Publishing is going to put a link up on their Facebook page to this show. You go there and you leave a comment and hopefully something positive about the show, the Deeper Waters Podcast, and you will be registered for a chance to win. A copy of a book. We'll probably put, have this contest going for about a week or so. Five people will get a free copy of Roman, but not Catholic. And maybe you've heard a lot of things on the show you like, and you really want to get into this, see what further research there is, because we're only scratching the surface. So uh, let's uh, start wrapping things up. Dr. Owens, do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yes, uh, my email is very simple. Uh, Ken dot collins at asburyseminary.edu and asbury seminary there is all one word okay. 
so B-S-B-U-R-Y-S-E-M-I-N-A-R-Y dot E-D-U. But aside from that, do you have any final comments you'd like to leave? Um, I, I think what Jerry and I are trying to do in the book, and the book, by the way, has been appreciated and understood by some and not appreciated and misunderstood by others. And mm. I want to say, you know, for my part, what our purpose was in doing this book, mm. that we are, are doing a, a, a deep, what we call deep ecumenism here. We are trying to actually talk about the difficult issues where we really do divide mm. and let's make progress in terms of these issues, what actually divides us. So we ask difficult questions. We point out disturbing things, but we do it in a larger spirit of love, Christian love and Catholicity. We welcome our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to our communion table. We fully accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and we want to engage in an ecumenical conversation that has hope, that has promise, that's not simply superficial. Mm. That that isn't talking about things that matter and that mm. actually divide us, like the communion table, like the deathbed, like Rome's judgment on Pentecostals in Latin America, Latin and South America today. You know, those issues mm. have to be discussed. Okay. Dr. Wallace, do you have a blog and email website where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yes, I do have a website, jerryowalls.com. You can check that out. And uh, if you want to email me, it's jwalls at hbu.edu is my my professional email. Uh And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters podcast? Yeah, uh, again, uh, the book book has got like 20 chapters in it, and there are a lot of topics we didn't even begin to to broach, but um, we have written to address both the historical questions, which many of them are, and Ken is a historian, and that's his expertise, and uh, I have written chapters that deal with with more epistemological, philosophical issues, so uh, a lot of ground there to be covered, and again, I I would emphasize that um, the ultimate aim of this book is Christian unity. The ultimate aim of the book is to promote Catholicism, rightly understood. So even though it's critical, it's a family conversation, and sometimes family conversations have to be frank and and to the point, and sometimes they can be a little hard to to address and discuss, but uh, uh, we're interested, again, in a deep ecumenism, one that is forthright, one that acknowledges our differences, but also one that emphasizes, uh, much more importantly, the, the fundamental Catholic agreement that we have about, about historic Orthodox Christianity, scriptural Christianity, and, uh, and our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ contending for the gospel uh, in a culture that is often hostile. So mm. we're about ultimately serving unity, even though we do not shirk from asking hard and difficult questions raising where we think uh, it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on your day and hope we see you back here again sometime. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, remind everyone that next week we're going to have Andy Bannister on talking about his book An Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran Manuscripts. For now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.